The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 164 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. In this episode, which is the first episode in a new Civil Engineering Entrepreneur series, I will be speaking with Gordon Green of Patel Green and Associates, also known as PGA. Gordon's going to talk about the importance of a mission statement in your business and creating one that your entire company can lean on when making day-to-day decisions. He's also going to touch on measuring business growth and the use of standard operating procedures in helping to scale a business. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano. I'm a licensed professional engineer who practiced as a civil engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineering Your Own Success and I've traveled the world helping engineers. I've also had the honor of authoring the American Society of Civil Engineers Careers and Leadership column for the past few years. Now, before we dive into this new exciting series, I do want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for this show and really this entire Civil Engineering Entrepreneur series, and that is Big Time. Big Time truly helped in creating the idea for this series. Let me just tell you a little bit about Big Time. Big Time is the industry-leading PSA software providing time tracking, billing, and project management for engineering firms with the goal of getting your business back to business. You can learn more about Big Time's PSA solution at bigtime.net. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, Gordon Green, PE. Gordon Green is a co-founder of Patel Green & Associates, also known as PGA, and currently serves as the executive vice president working out of their Bartow, Florida office. PGA has grown from two drainage engineers in 2011 to now 85 people in three offices, Tampa, Bartow, and Orlando, primarily supporting Florida Department of Transportation and local municipalities with highway engineering and planning. PGA's rapid growth is a testament to their clients' trust in their abilities and their great team of hardworking professionals, which Gordon is going to dig into in this interview. So without further ado, let's jump into our first episode of the Civil Engineering Entrepreneur Series with Gordon Green. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'm excited to welcome our guest to the podcast for today. Gordon Green is a co-founder of Patel Green and Associates, also known as PGA, down in Florida. Gordon, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. So Gordon, I'm excited to talk to you. Your company has certainly been growing and you know, we're really focusing on civil engineering entrepreneurs in this series. And before we kind of dive into some of the business questions that I wanted to get to, I really want to just hear about you and your company. I know the backstory is it was basically a couple of drainage engineers that kind of went out and started a business, but I'd love to hear the story from you. Hiron Patel and I started PGA and, and we were both at PBS&J, which was a the nationwide firm that were really big in Florida. So they were a successful firm and we were there for pretty much all of our consulting careers and, and got to work together and learned a lot there. And they went through a buyout and some other things. And it just kind of coincided with us feeling this pull to give it a go on our own. So we did that back in, in 2011. 
we um, got started back then. It was a uh, summer of 2011 and right out of the gate, we were able to, to win some projects and, and keep things going. And But even from the very beginning, you know, what we wanted to build was something where we could really bring lots of good folks together and build a company where they felt appreciated for their efforts and their talents and their hard work. Uh, that's what we tried to keep going uh, now that we're up to about 85, I think, now at this point across the three offices. So, so far, living the dream, man. Yeah, man. I mean, it's a big, uh, from being two guys starting off doing some consulting work to now 85 people that you're kind of overseeing and, and responsible for and leading really is got to be pretty cool. It's pretty surreal at times because, you know, Hiron and I, we can think back to you know, sitting on his couch, going through legal Zoom, setting all the stuff up, even then having the feeling of what the heck are we doing? What are we getting into? We laugh sometimes because you almost never really lose that feeling. We're always, I mean, we've grown pretty fast. So every new thing, you know, when we started service lines that we we didn't personally do, you know, road range drainage, we knew, but we don't design bridges. We don't design signals. So, you know, we're bringing folks into that and we do it and we go, well, I don't know. We don't really know what we're doing, but we know how to find good people that do know how to do it. So we're just going to trust in that ability and uh, keep things rolling. So whatever it is, opening up a new office location, trying to build relationships with a new client, that feeling of what the heck are we doing uh, never really leaves you. You just keep at it till you figure it out <laughs> and surround yourself with really smart people to help you get there. Either one of you had any kind of entrepreneurial experience or business ventures before this or? Not really. I got a little bit of that in my family. I think Hearn has a, lot, a little bit of that in his family. But personally, no. I mean, I, I worked at the DOT in District 1 for about a year. And then, like I said, went to PBS and J, did that for almost 10 years. I did go get an MBA. So that sort of maybe started to kindle some of that. Got an MBA here at USF. Took me longer to get that than did my engineering degree because by then I was working full time, had small kids, setting for a PE exam, all that stuff. Looking back, I'm like, man, that was kind of dumb to try to take all that on at the same time. But I did and got through it. And um, it was kind of eye opening. And it started at least to get me thinking, like, I think I could probably do that. Once I started getting into the marketing aspects of engineering, I really turned out to have a, a pretty good knack for that and enjoyed that a lot. And once it clicked that if you're good at that, and you want to go out and do your own thing, you might actually have some success doing it because, I mean, you got to be able to go win the work. It's inspiring to see a couple of engineers to grow something like this. And that's why I was kind of asking about the background, because I'm sure that a lot of our listeners that may be thinking about dipping their foot in the water in terms of starting their own business, maybe don't have any you know, entrepreneurial experience and probably makes them happy to hear you say that you didn't. I mean, obviously you got the MBA, but a lot of it is, you know, you kind of jump in surround yourself, like you said, with good people and figure some things out as we go. And, you know, one of the places I want to start here, Gordon, because I know that it's one of these things that when you work for an engineering company, you see a lot of this stuff, but you're not thinking about it from the owner's perspective. And that's kind of the company's mission and vision. I think a lot of times you can look at that and say, okay, my company has a mission and vision. It reads well, it's on our website, but I'm not really sure why we need to have one. And I'd love for you to talk about, you know, since you started from scratch, you kind of had to think through all this stuff and setting up like a company mission and vision. Why is that important for a company to have that? When we started, we set a mission and vision, and I can't remember what it was, but it was the standard sort of, we're going to develop something to do with cost-effective solutions, and it was engineering focused. And I mean, it was a good mission, but it was one I never memorized, obviously. 
when we got together in 2018 to develop a strategic plan, we decided we were getting close to 50 people and we hired and I were starting to have that feeling of, okay, we can't just shoot from the hip anymore. You know, if we're going to continue to grow this thing, we're going to be hundred people, 200 people. We've got to get something down on paper, bring in some of these other great brains we have and, and get a plan together. And, and we brought some outside folks in to help us with that. And anyways, part of that process, we redid our mission and vision. We decided we needed to redo that. With the idea being, you want to set up a mission and vision that directs you, you know, gives you direction in all your decisions. You need a lens through which to pass all tough decisions through, and it needs to go through that mission and vision. And that'll really help you make decisions, even the tough decisions. And so we set our mission as we exist to elevate our families, communities, and profession. And then that we really like that. We go to that a lot. Our vision is that we inspire unified family professionals to humbly serve our communities with passion, purpose, and unwavering excellence. I read that one. I don't have that memorized. But the mission I have memorized because it's simple. It's short and simple. And we go to it a lot. One thing we, as we were deliberating, you know, the wording of it, one thing we decided on is we weren't going to include engineer or engineering in the mission because we're not just engineers. We're administrative folks, we're marketing folks, we're scientists and planners, and we're a whole family of folks that all should be striving to the mission. And I think that cuts out a pretty good group when they go to that mission and go, well, I'm not really an engineer. So how do I fit into the mission? Well, you do. We're all professionals. We're all in this together. I'll give you a couple examples as I was thinking through this that kind of exemplifies this. So part of that mission is, is elevating communities. So we might ask ourselves, should we encourage our folks to be active in their communities. Well, if you ask that of any company, they say, oh yeah, sure, absolutely, we should do that. But what are you actually doing to encourage that? You know, what are you doing to actually see some results from that? Are you the leaders leading by example? Are you just saying, that sounds great, we should do that, but then you're not doing it yourself. As a group of leaders, we're always coming back to, we're going to ask folks to do stuff, like extra stuff, we better be doing it. And then we've identified folks that are especially passionate about charitable organizations or community, like civic participation, you know, being a part of the community. And we just empower them and let them run with that sort of thing, find opportunities for us to get plugged in. And then we put our money where our mouth is. You know, if someone says, I want to take some time and do this, we encourage them to do it. That's the way we kind of live that mission. And we try to promote those things and, and highlight when folks do that stuff so that everybody sees that we're living our mission and elevating our, our profession. So we can be involved in groups like ACEC. We do a lot of work there. We stay involved, trying to be part of the change to make things better or make positive uh, changes in our profession. And then get involved with young folks, the younger generation. We have a lot of high school interns, college interns. Even if we don't necessarily have a whole lot for them to do, we tend to just bring them on and get them plugged in and get them trained up and find out if they're the next rock star. And we want them attached to civil engineering. A lot of them come out, they want to be mechanical engineers or some of these other things that sound a little sexier, we go, no, man, civil engineering, design of roads, that's where it's at. Join the club. And um, we've had some pretty good success doing that. And then we just come back to that mission over and over again. So the folks see that we're living the mission and you get that buy-in. And then the more you get buy-in from folks, then they just do it on their own. What I really like about that philosophy is it's really a functional mission in that you're using it all the time to make decisions, which is great because running a business, you're constantly making decisions and it gives you common theme to run with on those decisions to kind of make sure that your company as a whole is kind of running in the same direction. 
the more you grow, you can still keep that very simple mission and everybody can kind of latch on to that culture, that philosophy and say, listen, we know what the deal is here. It's very simple. We all know what it is. So how can we impact that or how will this decision affect that? One thing that really comes out for me when you read vision statement and recite the mission statement is community. I mean, it's obvious that community is important to you and everyone in your company. And I think personally, just in the world of civil engineering, that's a great word because we help to build communities. Like you said, it's not just engineers. I mean, it's every single person walking outside down the street. My kids ask me what civil engineers do, and I just tell them, go look outside. <laughs> so I think having the word community in there is a really great part of it for those reasons. So that's great. You talked about this a little bit in terms of, you know, a lot of times the mission and vision statement is lofty and it's something that's up there. You need to bring it down to the ground often. It seems like you do that because you lean on it so much. So if you're in the room with some people, you know, other people there in the company, you're talking about something, it may just come up. Is that right? Exactly. And you talk about the vision being lofty and I just read the mission and vision and they're not prescription. You know, sometimes you see a vision as, we want to be this thing in this location, that sort of thing. And it, you maybe you're a small company and you want to be some leading thing in the Florida, the Southeast. And it seems like, man, that's going to take forever to get there. So it can be discouraging. And that's the point you're making. So we kind of steered away from that in terms of mission and vision, but we did, we built our strategic plan. And that's kind of, I think, more in line with what you're getting at, which is some of our goals in the strategic plan. It's a five-year plan. They're lofty, but you know, by coming back to it over and over again and taking those small bites out of it, why that's a little more effective in our eyes, instead of uh, taking a vision statement and breaking it up, it obviously is more logical to say, hey, we've got this strategic plan with all these objectives. When you break those objectives down into sub-objectives that you can, why well, we can get this stuff done this year and that'll help us get this part of, of it done next year, so on and so forth. And, and you get the whole thing achieved. Well, people can get their head wrapped around that. And instead of trying to get the whole thing done, they get just a piece of it done. You know, get one domino to fall and, and uh, you know, the rest will come after that if we just keep at it. The strategic plan is kind of really where you're headed and the vision and mission are something that you can have around you at all times to keep you on track for that. Having a mission and vision, especially the mission, like you said, that's really simple, that can just permeate everything you do is really valuable because you need some common thread, especially as you know, you're starting to have different offices now and, you know, someone gets hired into another office and then there's two other offices that they don't know who the people are, but, you know, everyone knows that they have the same mission and they're getting that in their vernacular and in their thought processes. And I think that that's super valuable. Let's talk a little bit about something that can sometimes be scary which is meetings. I mean, you start your company with a couple of people and now you're at 85 people, different divisions, different departments. What is your philosophy around meetings in terms of how often you have them? Do you let your department managers pick that? How does that work? We certainly have meetings, but I hate wasting time. I'm all about a short meeting. If we're going to spend time on something, there should be some value in it. So we got tons of meetings. A lot of them are like a robot group. They have a weekly workload meeting. It's 15 to 20 minutes. It's just running through the list. We don't need a full detailed report of everything you're working on. That's not the point of the meeting. The point of the meeting is tell me if you're too busy or you're too light and then move on. We'll get it done. I mean, they'll have 20 something people in that meeting and they get it done in 15, 20 minutes, uh, achieve the purpose of the meeting and then everybody get back to work. We really try to reinforce that we do need to have meetings. We've got to get together. It's virtually now, but even stuff like that was always virtually for us. There's no point in bringing everybody in a room just to say that stuff. Just jump on Teams or on a conference call and work smarter, not harder, right? 
So that's how we handle a lot of that stuff. A lot of our bigger groups will have staff meetings, so nothing you know super novel there. But again, there's goals we have with those meetings of, of sharing information. Maybe we take a longer look out there, right, to make sure nothing's falling through the cracks. What sort of submittals do we have coming up? People got vacations. All, you know, you just ha- you hash all that stuff out and move folks around as needed before, you know, it becomes a problem. With these meetings, as your company grows, are you kind of like go to the division managers and say, you know, you do what you feel is best for your department? Or do you have like a standard when you think you need to meet type of thing? The folks we have in those roles, uh, those group managers, there's no handholding or anything. It's their group to run, but obviously we talk to each other quite a bit too. So there's best practices and we, we try to build some consistency, but everybody does their thing, whatever makes most sense with their group. Yeah. So plenty of freedom. One of the things I wanted to touch base a little bit on following up on the meetings idea is metrics in general. I mean, you start off small, so you need to have enough workload for a couple of people. Now you have 85 people, you got to keep everybody busy, you keep kind of the train moving. What are some things that you do as the leader or some things that you t- that you look at or, you know, measurements to be able to say, hey, we're on pace, we need more work, you know, we have too much work, we got to hire. How does that process look for you just in general? So we've got something we call a marketing sales plan or MSP for short. So we've been using that for a while, actually. When we were much smaller, it's a spreadsheet that takes our backlog, you know, hard backlog, soft backlog. And then recently, we've also put like our targeted pursuits and with a chance of success, you know, all that good stuff in there. And then we project it out quarterly. We didn't always do that. What we did originally was just listed our backlog. And if, you know, we knew, you know, we could do the calculation and say, well, we need a million dollars a year in backlog. And if we've got $2 million in backlog, yippee, we got two years. That's fantastic. But what we found is we got larger and larger that didn't provide as much value as it used to. We'd find that, well, yeah, so we've got all this backlog, but some of it's kind of sitting way out there and we can't get to it. They're not letting us work on it or it's just a very long-term project, whatever. So we started breaking it up and saying, okay, I know my schedule. So I got a million dollars on this project. I should be able to bill a couple hundred thousand based on my schedule next quarter, you know, so on and so forth. As we got bigger, that got to be such a cumbersome process that we just weren't doing it. No, nobody wanted to do it. It was a huge pain in the butt. It took too much time. And then finally, last year, that was one of our major objectives was to, again, work smarter, not harder. We had gone to Dell Tech Ajira, so we were already taking advantage of some of the power there. But one thing about Ajira is it comes the way it comes with the tools they built or widgets they built. And if you want anything custom, you got to open up the pocketbook. That irritates me. So. This is an accounting system, right? Just so everyone who doesn't know. Yes, it's our financial management software. I mean, it ain't cheap to begin with. And then, you know, they kind of hold you, bend you over a little bit uh, when you need something customized. Luckily for us, our controller is married to a computer programmer who kind of has a side hustle. And we've had a lot of success. He dove into that Ajira database and built us a, a sister database that allows us to build some custom reports. So we built our MSP in a database, have it linked to a JIRA and all of our PMs develop payout curves for the projects. So then all our controller has to do literally, literally just click a button. As long as all that information is in there, uh, which that takes some time, you know, we have to encourage our PMs to take some time to, to develop a payout curve, but we should be doing that anyway, right? For our projects. And then you click that button and it projects everything out. So now we can look at it and go, okay, the next quarter we need $3 million ideally 
we've got five showing up here. Oof. Well, those payout curves are right. We're about to be really busy or the reverse, right? You know, maybe that third quarter, the numbers are looking a little low. We can do some marketing to fill those gaps. But anyway, it gets the conversation going. You start thinking about, you know, are you in good shape or not? And what can you do to fix the whatever the issue might be? So that's kind of been on my plate here recently, driving that and coordinating that, make sure that stays up to date. So that still is a very important metric for us that we have spent quite a bit of time on developing the tool and then spend a, a decent amount of time, but not too much time keeping up to date. Because I've always found that if you make something too cumbersome, no one's going to use it. And then what good is it? It's a good point. I mean, it's like kind of that balance between you want something that's effective, but that's not overwhelming to the point that you're not going to keep it up. And then therefore, it's not going to be effective. So, And you pay engineers to be engineers, not accountants. We try to limit the amount of accounting that our project managers and engineers have to do because that's not what we pay them to do. But it sounds like you know you've got something going there in terms of having computer programmer getting involved. I mean, really what I found in business is that maybe you don't need a ton of different programs, but you do need some really key metrics that you really do need to keep an eye on that can really drive the company. And if you miss something like that, it's a problem. So with any company you grow, you figure out what those metrics are. And then just like you did, you build something to be able to help you track it as successfully as you can. It's neat to look at other metrics like revenue factor or revenue per employee and and those things. And we're, we, that's one of our goals for this year is to get more into that um, benchmark them. And, and it's good to do that. But at the end of the day, it's cash, cash is cash flow is king. And if you mess up your cash flow, I don't care what your other metrics look like you're done. So we focus a lot on that. It's like that 80, 20 rule. There's a couple of things that really matter and everything else is a lot less important. And, you know, cash is one of those things that really matters. And I feel like if you have a heartbeat on that, you're going to be in relatively good shape. I can't remember who said this and I probably won't say it quite right, but you hear from our mission and you were to sit in some of our meetings, hopefully you would glean this. Making money and profit and all that stuff is not our primary objective, but cash and profit are kind of like air. You don't really think about them. That's not your driving thing. But if you run out of air or you run out of cash, you're dead. You do have to pay attention. <laughs> we try to be really good here about building culture and interacting with our people and you know, focusing on their goals. And that's all good stuff. You want to do that. But at the end of the day, too, you need to bring in dollars to be able to do everything you we want to do. Like you said, impacting communities. You want to impact the community. You got to be alive. You got to having that cash flow can help you to do great things in a community, you know? And so it's kind of like one goes with the other. And maybe you're not focused so much on the cash or some great things you want to do, but that's also a driver of being able to do that. And we need to keep that in mind. And that's Important part of, uh, of course, running a business. Now, getting along in a little bit more with kind of the, the runnings of the business, in all businesses, obviously, including civil engineering, there are some real core procedures or processes that you know you need to follow to make the company successful, to make the company work. You know, maybe a good process for hiring people, for executing projects, project kickoff meetings, et cetera, whatever it comes down to. Does your company put emphasis on kind of capturing some of these key processes so that they can be consistent through the company, especially as you grow? We're always yeah, soliciting feedback and trying to keep a pulse on things to see where developing some sort of process would provide value and benefit. And that's where we try to focus our efforts in those areas. The idea of a process is to provide comfort and confidence for those doing it, that, that they're doing the right thing and they're doing it the right way. It's never to create drudgery, this feeling of drudgery, like, okay, I'm going through these motions, but I don't really know why and I don't like it. 
if we're going to introduce something new, we try to explain why we're doing it. What's the value to the company, to you individually, maybe to somebody else that you should care about? Why are we doing this? And then, you know, if we do that, it becomes a much easier sell. You get buy-in on people doing it. And then maybe it takes some extra effort to do a certain process and, and people will do it if they understand the why. And then we just try to make it as efficient as possible. So like going back to the MSP, that's important. That's cash flow. That's like one of the most important things. What we were doing became so inefficient that as important as it was, we weren't doing it. Even when everybody understands the why and the importance, if, if you don't make it efficient, then the process won't be followed. So it's important to spend time doing that too. You mentioned hiring. So when I think hiring, I think of a couple of things. I think of the recruiting side, getting them in the door, and then the onboarding. And I highlight those two things because we, from a process standpoint, we might approach those two different ways. So hiring, we might be a little looser. You know, if it's some sort of strategic hire and you kind of got to go incognito and they have meetings to the side, you're not going to probably let a larger group in on that initially. And you might have a smaller group pursuing that person and doing whatever you got to do, right, to get them in. Whereas, you know, an EI at a college, it's a little more process-based, right? We need to get a bunch of resumes. We need to have a team review them. And, and that's a process. And we've got a process for that and how we do it. And we've got an HR coordinator that helps us, you know, keep to the process. And then onboarding on the flip side, no matter who you hire, whether it's that strategic hire or it's the EI, the onboarding should be like process-driven, right? Like we should be doing that pretty much the same way every time. Otherwise, you're going to forget a couple things on this person. You're going to forget a couple things on this person. And not everybody's getting the same start in the company. You're forgetting things to let them know about or whatever, and you hinder their smooth transition into the company. So onboarding, we've got checklists and we've got a very established process for how we do that. But we're always looking, we're always refining it too. You know, you do it a few times and you go, well, this isn't really working. And we're finding that we're missing these couple of things. And so you fix it. And then the process is made better. One of the benefits of being an engineer and an entrepreneur, at least from my own experience, is the process side of things. You know, I feel pretty comfortable with that in terms of if I see something like, for example, onboarding that's highly critical that it be consistent across the company. Let's put a good process in place. And I feel like our analytical kind of frameworks can help us to do that. But to your point, it's important to continuously update those processes, especially as the company grows. I mean, something that works for a company that's 15 people, obviously with 80 people, 85 people may not work the same. So it's just like a whole other facet of building a business is the procedures and processes and when you need it, and then how to continue to expand it with everything else. And putting people in charge of, of paying attention to it because, you know, 80 something people and growing hard and I can't monitor all that stuff all the way down the onboarding process. So we're always happy to provide input if someone wants to make a change and they want our input, but you need somebody else paying attention to that. And, and so we, every chance we get, we're trying to empower one of our folks to take ownership of this process or that process or whatever. And, and if changes need to be made, then you know, they know the process better than anyone else. So let's make the change. One of the big challenges with uh, engineers in general is we struggle kind of delegating and giving work away just because we start our careers really in the details. I mean, that's how we come up. There's no way around that. But you seem to me like someone who is comfortable giving stuff away and delegating. Is that true or is that something you had to work on a lot? Well, I had to work on it a lot. <laughs> I've gotten better at it, mostly out of necessity. There's only so many hours in the day and I don't like letting people down. So when I see that I'm letting people down because I'm not getting to something that 
that I'm responsible for, then I need to start thinking about maybe I shouldn't be responsible for that anymore because now I'm failing. Someone else can do this better than I can. Once we had enough drainage engineers, we needed someone to manage the drainage group. And so I took that on early. Well, as soon as we had enough people that we needed that we could call ourselves a group, I did that. And I just found that I was not a very effective drainage group manager after a while because I projects to manage. I had duties to run the company and I got to hand this off. That was kind of big because I love drainage and drainage is one of the things that we are known for. I mean, we built our reputation on, on being innovative, great drainage engineers, but you know, we found the right guy. And as soon as we were like, okay, he's the one I handed that sucker off and never looked back. And of course he's a 10 times better drainage group manager than I was for sure, because that's, I mean, he gets to focus his attention on that. And I just try to stay out of his way. It's certainly a skill that is learned. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and like I said, engineers and entrepreneurs, that's a big deal, at least from what I've seen. What would you say, Gordon, if someone asked you in terms of like your day-to-day role in the company today, like what is your job there? How do you see your job? We still wear quite a few hats. So I've got projects that I manage. I have uh, projects where I'm responsible for the drainage design. And so I've, I've got to attend to those things. But I also have several leadership responsibilities to where I'm solving problems there. Uh, you know, something pops up and, and I need to make a decision. So Hiron and I share a lot of those responsibilities and, and we've worked out a, a pretty good, just for efficiency's sake and practicality's sake, you know, here's some things that you'd probably go to Hiron on here, some things you'd probably go to Gordon on. And there, of course, there's some things where uh, the both of us get together or all the owners get together and, and we make those decisions. It's a, a day full of five to 10 minute tasks from start to finish of let me help make this decision and get someone going on this drainage or this design change and a lot of that. Now, in order to, to grow this company further, you know, maybe to hundreds of people, do you feel like you'll be stepping away completely from project work? And is that something you do are okay with or would you rather stay engaged at some level? Well, I'm okay with it. Um, we were pretty adamant that Hiron and I really needed to do that, like even when we set up the strategic plan two years ago. And obviously there's some wisdom in in that, but at the same time, we've got really good client relationships. And where we're kind of at right now is it's it's a little foolish to just step away. This past year, a a project opportunity came up and it it just didn't make sense for anyone else to pursue it than me because of my relationships and some of my experience and stuff like that. And so I did it. So 2021, I got a lot of project stuff that I got to do. I'm going to rely on the team a lot. I might not roll my sleeves up and and get much into the, obviously the production of the project. I go months without opening MicroStation anymore, uh, which makes me sad when I think about it because, you know, I came up doing that stuff and I really, really enjoy it. But, you know, I had to give that up a while ago, but, you know, still get into the design. So we go back and forth, but at this point, I'm kind of like, you do need to stay somewhat sharp technically. Now, if we're two or 3,000 people, you know, 20 years from now, then yeah, that's probably might be kind of silly at that point for me to be getting into projects. But I would say for the next little while, we'll still be plugged in a little bit because we're still marketing. And if you're marketing, you got to be sharp. You know, if we get to the point where some big engineering firm and I'm not even really marketing anymore, I'm just doing whatever. I don't even see, that's the thing. And I don't even know what does the person do at the top of a, a 2000? I don't know. Uh, we'll figure it out if we get there, I guess, but We'll do what makes sense, right? You'll make your own way. You'll do whatever you want to do, quite frankly. That's the beauty of entrepreneurship. Every company's different. People run different companies different ways, even if they're both civil engineering companies. 
I knew a, a CEO of like a three or 400 person civil engineering company and he was still getting involved in the road projects. I mean, listen, like you said, you have a lot of wisdom. You know, you guys are talented drainage engineers. That's why you started the business, which means that, you know, even if it means someone coming into your office and showing you a plan and saying, Gordon, what do you think we should do here? We're getting started in this project. That may be your technical contribution, but that's a big contribution, right? Because it almost would be like not a good move to not lean on that wisdom of those leaders for because of the technical background that they have. So I think that that's one of those things in civil engineering that really every business has to just see how much of the owners are going to be doing the technical stuff. There's really no wrong or right answer. It just depends on like a million different things. But I think you have a really good handle in terms of, I think the mission, the vision there of like, you know, permeating that through the company is really awesome. You know, using it to make decisions is really awesome. You know, that's not something I've heard a lot of people do, but it just makes a ton of sense. So it's really good to hear that. It's excited to hear you grow. So we're going to take a break right now. I'm going to come back with Gordon and Gordon, we're going to put you on the hot seat for a few last questions. Is that all right? Sounds good. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, we're back with Gordon Green, co-founder of Patel Green and Associates. We've been talking about growing civil engineering business, getting into a lot of interesting aspects of it. But now, Gordon, we're going to put you on what we like to call the civil engineering hot seat, where we're going to throw some career-related questions at you. So here we go. First question, Gordon, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, maybe it's something you do every morning or at lunchtime or something that you do consistently on a daily basis that's helped to contribute to your success. For about the last year, before that, no. Before that, it was work as much as I possibly can, as much of the day as I can. And that'll wear you out. And so what I've been doing for a little over a year is I've got a routine. And I do think it's helped me get the most out of my day outside of just time I spend on the business. So I get up, I have a quiet time where I I do pray and I read my Bible every morning because that was one thing, that was one area of my life where I was certainly negligent. So I said, I'm going to do that. That's the very first thing I'm going to do every day. If I neglected the rest of the day, I got that done in the morning. And I go to the gym to try to take care of myself because I'm almost 39 and I feel great now. But before that, I'm like, I don't, I'm 37, but I feel like maybe 57 some days, you know, and I made that correction. And then that leaves the rest of my day, just balancing time between my family, where I, I do try to make sure I'm, I'm giving them some of my time. And then the rest is work, man. The rest I fit as much work as I possibly can each day to accomplish as, as much as I can. And I'm a big to-do list guy. So I always look at my to-do list each morning. Uh, and then cry a little bit each night when I realize I got about half of it done, shove it to the next day and, and give it a go uh, the next day. In terms of that routine, was it something that where you were just kind of getting worn down? You said, I got to make a change or? You didn't ask about work-life balance, which I kind of appreciate because I think there's a, a varied understanding of what that is. My understanding of work-life balance is everybody's got their own, right? And I like to work. So my work-life balance is there's going to be a lot of work in it but there was probably too much. It was definitely imbalanced. So this was my way of, of defining my work-life balance, which does include a lot of work, but it, it includes making some time for some other things that are important in my life. Yeah, that's great. And it's good to hear that you became aware of that and then you took some steps to put some habits in place. I and mean, I think it's all about creating kind of good habits, especially for entrepreneurs or else you know, we will get burnt out and we got to put some limits on things. But at the same time, like, you know, everyone's different. Like my wife is a civil engineer, she has a municipal job, like her work-life balance looks different than mine and where I'm building a business. So, 
you kind of have to see what where you're at, but you do have to keep an eye on things, like you said, or else you know you can run yourself out. You have to give yourself boundaries because I, I used to, whenever it would start getting crazy, my wife would ask what's going on, and you know it might be some submittal or some big presentation, and once that was over, she would go, "Okay, it's over. I have enough to do. I could work a hundred hours every week and still not get it all done." I just have to stop at some, but even without boundaries, you know, you're working 60, 70 week after week, after week, after week, it, um, it'll take a toll. I think it was a couple of years ago. I started doing some like meditation in the morning because I actually interviewed a, a woman up here in New Jersey who started her own civil engineering firm. And she was like really going a hundred miles an hour And her, I think it was her, her spouse convinced her to meditate. So she started this program. So I started doing it. And when I started learning about it, someone explained, like, if you want to think about what meditation is, like, imagine you're falling through the air, but then there's no ground to catch you, which is like an interesting thing to think about. Like you're falling and there's no ground. Like, is that cool? Is that bad? Is that good? And I was talking to an engineer about that and about the idea of productivity and being productive. And I'm like, you think about it, like you're never done. If you're like running a hundred miles an hour to try to be done, realize, just stop right now and realize that nothing ends. Like it's not a race that you're running that's going to end because you're going to have a million things to do the next day. So (laughs) it's kind of like you just need to be productive, maybe prioritize well, get a good chunk of things done, and then re-gear up for the next day and take care of yourself. That's one of the things that a lot of people in the business world are running towards something, but what they realize is there's no end to the race. Like, And you got to kind of keep that in mind. So it only took me nine years. Plus, I was pretty much the same way at PBS and J. So I don't know. Twenty it only took me twenty years to figure it out. All right. So, Gordon, what's one book that you might recommend? Not necessarily for engineers, but just a book that you found to be helpful in your personal or professional development. I always enjoy Jim Collins. Good to great. I know that's kind of cliche, um, but it really is a good book. And I go back to a lot of the lessons there, especially in terms of leading a company. You know, the difference between that four-star leader and the five-star leader, they look a lot alike, but the five-star leader, when they leave the company, they leave it so that it can be better than when they were running it. That's what Hiron and I strive to be. You know, we, at some point when we leave PGA, we want it to continue on and, and continue to be even greater rather than we leave and we take that greatness with us if there is any greatness in us at all. And then the company completely fails because we were just four-star leaders. It's a good book. Gordon, thinking back on kind of your managers of the past and not to name any names, but just thinking about it, you know, there's always managers that stick out for you. We're like, yeah, that person was a great manager. I really enjoyed working for that person. If you had a manager that was one of your favorite or a couple of favorites, what made them great? Like, were there certain characteristics or traits that you remember about them that made them like me, that you really enjoyed working for them? Well, as far as direct supervisors, I mean, I had some good ones. And what I really appreciated about them, even if they weren't maybe great in the way you're thinking they were great in that they at least recognized that I could do the job and they, they really left me alone to run with stuff and learn things that were probably a little ahead of what I should have been doing at whatever level in my career, which allowed me to advance a little quicker or really accelerate my learning. You know, along with what you're thinking, it was really folks that we now have working at PGA, which is, you know, still very surreal for me. So I'll name those names, but David Long's with us. He kind of hired me way back. I mean, he's known me since I was, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, working at DOT and at PBS and J. And I mean, he's like, his approach to leadership is what we tried to embody, which is surrounding yourself with those good, smart people and letting them do their jobs, you know, get them what they need. And we say this all the time, especially when we're recruiting, 
like a strategic hire, especially is we're not going to get in your way. We already know you're smart and we know you're great. Uh, we just want you over here so that you can tell me what you need to be great. And then I'm going to get the heck out of your way unless you need me. I didn't hire you to get in, in your way. Right. And so uh, yeah, that's a, one of the many lessons I learned from Dave just, and probably just treating people with kindness. I mean, that's big thing for us is kindness to one another, obviously to our clients and others. And that, that's a big deal is just being good people and how we treat people. I've never, except at a softball game, I've never seen Dave yell or get mad at anyone. And then like, you know, Tim Polk is um, our chief drainage engineer. And, and he was, you know, one of my mentors again from when I was a kid. And now here he's been with us five years now. Dave's been with us about five years as well. These are some of my mentors on how you approach a project. Again, how you treat other people, you know, the efforts that you put into finding the right solution. They led by example in those areas. And, and now we were able to bring them in here and they share that wisdom and guidance with the young engineers we have here today. All right. I got one final question here for you, Gordon. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, and you had to give some kind of career advice in that short period of time, what would you tell them? Work your butt off. I could only tell people what I did. Do the project that nobody else wants to do. Put the extra time in, especially when you're young, unless you get married re really young like I did. But even then, that didn't stop me uh, to the detriment of, of my wife. But work, man, just work. There's a lot to learn. None of it's incredibly complicated. But there's just a lot. There's a lot to learn outside of the technical stuff even. Put the time in and you will blow past your peers. Yeah, for sure. And listen, there are so many opportunities in the civil engineering world now and, and just it's going to keep going on that if you just keep your eyes open, there's going to be something there. Like Gordon says, you can jump on it. There's going to be things that come up. Do you want this? Do you want to try this? Do you want to try this? And yeah, that was my philosophy too was, yes, I'll try it. Sure, I'll try it. And, you know, and, and that's how you get out there. That's how you make a name for yourself. And that's how, you know, maybe one day end up building a company yourself. And that's obviously, you know, Gordon's proof of that. So Gordon Green, thank you so much for spending some time with us here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. It was really thrilled to get to chat with you about what you're doing there. And I wish all of you there the best. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that first episode in the Civil Engineering Entrepreneur Series here on the Civil Engineering Podcast. You can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number 164, and there you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And I'm really excited for the series because I think it's important to understand what it takes to grow a civil engineering firm, even if you're just an employee at one and you have no intention of owning one or growing one, because it is helpful in terms of your own mindset. So I hope that you'll really kind of listen to these owners and the challenges that they face and how they overcome them, because really what they're doing is they're trying to grow companies, which keeps people employed. And as civil engineers, we know that we are improving the built environment, which is very exciting. And if you go to engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and you hover over the content tab in the Civil Engineering Podcast, we are going to have a page dedicated to this series, just like we have one for our Women in Civil Engineering series, which you can find there as well. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. 
For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.